I scared some people uh, that I was going to play the keyboard. No, no, I won't. I, I promise I won't. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to uh, Sunday morning in, uh, in the 305, where the traffic is just like uh, Monday morning sometimes. And uh, I am so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you had steadfastness, that you persevered that you said, you know what, the goal was worth the drive. And so uh, thank you so much for, uh, for coming today. Uh, there's so many things on my mind I'd like to share with you. My name's uh, Neil, and I think I've, I've been here before, right? Yeah, so I'm here, my family, my wife and I are members here, and uh, we, love our, we love being here at the Brook, and uh, love sharing God's Word when we have the opportunity. I'd like you to uh, turn your Bible, and your Bibles, or your Bible apps, or however you, uh, however you do that kind of thing these days, to the book of James, and James chapter 5, James chapter 5, and I want, I want to talk to you today about um, a topic that we don't really often talk a lot about, and it's, it's a topic that when I told my wife about it, I mean, she literally rolled her eyes at me, like, I mean, and when she wasn't here, I'd like, 11.30, I thought, uh-oh, she's ditched me. <laughs> uh, but yes, there's some traffic. The thought was, uh, <laughs> the theme for today is the coming of the Lord. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. When I think about what I do, uh, as a chaplain in a hospital setting. And when I think about my life and the way I live my life, and I think about days when life is hard and, and difficult, there's a couple of thoughts that go through my head. The one thought is this, I believe in the risen Christ. That makes all the difference. There's a lot of good people in the world, good, relatively speaking. We thank God that not everyone is as bad as they possibly can be, right? We're thankful for, for good people everywhere. But what makes a good person different than a Christian? What makes them different is that the Christian believes in the risen Christ. And the risen Christ changes everything. But even as we approach Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, not that long from now, we have to understand that it's not simply an empty tomb scene anymore because 40 days after Jesus ascended into heaven. And if you read Acts chapter 1, the angelic messengers tell the apostles as they see Jesus ascend into heaven, they say, he is coming back. And that changes everything too. Because when we find ourselves overwhelmed in life and we find ourselves, you know, with the problems of life and the world and, and everything surrounded in it, we really need to have some hope, don't we? If we have hope in the risen Christ, we know that there's resurrection power available to us. And we know what the apostle says about resurrection power. And we know that that's available to us. But we also need to know that Jesus is coming again. Now, I know why my wife rolled her eyes at me. I know why. Because there may be some of us here today who are old enough to remember uh, the days when people spent a lot of time talking about prophecy 
and spending hours upon hours upon hours trying to figure out who the Antichrist is, right? That's what they did. And someone would say, I think it's this political figure. And someone would say, I think it's this political figure. No, I think it's this religious figure. And, and people would spend hours doing that. And it seems like a, a kind of a, a silly waste of time now that I look back at growing up in the 70s. And that was something that people within churches actually did. And there are some people also who spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly when Jesus will return. And they say to themselves, if you take this verse from Revelation and you divide it by this verse in 1 Thessalonians and you add this verse in Daniel, lo and behold, you mix it up and you, you put it in the, the, you know, the neutral blender or whatever, and, you, and, and out, comes, out comes the day when Jesus is going to return. I tell you with all sincerity of heart, and I, I am not making this up, that I graduated seminary uh, with my MDiv in 1988, which is like a millennium ago, right? And so I graduated in 1988, and there was a book that came out that year, 88 Reasons Why the Lord Will Return in 1988. That book was a bestseller. It was sold like hotcakes. And I remember, it was like Labor Day, 1988. The Lord was going to return. And I remember I was, I was at home on my parents' farm in Pennsylvania, and I was, I was splitting wood. Uh, we had like one of, one of those old uh, Montgomery Ward wood splitting machines. And I was sitting there all day splitting wood because winter was coming. And I remember, you know, I'm looking up, and I just, I'm not seeing it. The Lord hasn't returned yet. So every time someone sets a date, this makes Christians look foolish. You may have remembered, you may have remembered, uh, I think it was 2012, there was a guy who put the billboards up on, was it 95 or 75 up in Broward, and he said the Lord's returning in 2012, and guess what? Didn't happen, right? And so how do Christians look when they make a date and it doesn't happen, right? They look foolish, they look silly, and it takes away from the hope, and, and, and really, Besides looking foolish and silly, we stop thinking about that the Lord is going to return. And that's a problem. That's a really big problem. I'll give you one other silly story if you don't mind. When I was a young guy, the pastor of the church I was in was a, was a godly man. He's just a godly man. Um, you know, at least from you know, my young guy sitting in the pew perspective. That, it was under his ministry I came to know the Lord in Vacation Bible School. And uh, you know, when he preached, you know, I felt like I was hearing from God. You know, he's one of those kind of guys. And he was, you know, uh, obviously had his flaws, but he was, you know, I, I really got a sense he was a man of God. And I remember one day as I was getting older and going to Bible college myself, he told me about his experience in Bible college. He was a really good preacher. And he would be asked to preach in different churches in the community. And he, he did big events, you know, within the churches and uh, with, you know, church citywide events, things like that. And he was a senior in Bible college. He, told me. he was a senior in Bible college. And one of the professors came to him and said, listen, listen. Uh, and they called him by his name and said, listen, you need to drop out now. What? He was the president of his class. He was a popular guy. He was, you know, God was using him. He said, no, you need to drop out of Bible college now because you're wasting your time studying the Bible. What you need to do is you need to drop out now and head to every street corner in town and, and, and start preaching messages because the Lord is going to return soon. And, you know, there was a kind of a big, important professor who told this guy this. And he took it really seriously, and he actually contemplated it. But as he looked back at his life, he thanked God that he didn't. My pastor was a Bible college graduate, the class of 1934. 
It looked like the Lord was going to return, but the Lord didn't return. And so we simply start our talk today, our message today, by just acknowledging that the day, a day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day, and that every generation of believers has had the right to expect that Jesus could return in our generation. If you lived in the early church and you saw Nero burning Christians, you say, aha, he's the Antichrist. The Lord is going to come back soon. If you lived, you know, if for, for those uh, who endured the Holocaust and you saw, uh, and you saw what Hitler was doing and, and, menacing and menacing the world and so forth with his uh, anti-Semitism and his desire for world power, it would be easy for us to say, ah, there's the Antichrist. The Lord is going to return soon. But now we're in the year 2020, and you know what? We probably could look through the newspaper and scan it over this morning and spend some time on it and say, ah, the Lord can return soon, even based on the events of today. But a believer always needs to have that hope that the Lord is going to return. That you know what? We're not left alone in this world. We don't have to simply wait till we die. Of course, when we die, if we're, if we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. But the believer's hope is even bigger than that. So I invite you to look at, with me at James chapter 5, and you're going to say, how on earth does this passage relate? We're going to read a lengthier passage uh, and, and hone in on just a few verses uh, in, in, at the end of the passage. It's James chapter 5, and, and James, James, as you know or you may know, is the half-brother of Jesus. He's Jesus' half-brother. And uh, he, gives, he talks straight, he talks plain. If you've read James before, you know he's a very practical guy. He says, come now, you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. If James knows any rich people that are nice, he never tells us about it. <laughs> Every rich person James knows is a person who is wicked. And he says, these are the last days, my friends. What are you doing? All you're doing is hoarding up wealth. That's what you're doing in the last days. You are spending your time getting all the money you can and hoarding it to yourself. And this James gets, James gets really irate about it. And you've heard the saying, and I'm sure I've said it. You know what we say about people who hoard wealth, that you can't take it with you, right? I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse, right? You've heard that saying before. You can't take it with you. But this verse has a spiritual meaning to it. He says, your riches are with you, and they're eating your flesh like fire. Whoa, James is out there, right? He is way out there. I probably would have said those said it that way myself, but that's the inspired word of God. And he says, he says, don't hoard riches in the last days. And then he said, and the reason why is that these people were not rich because they uh, were extra specially gifted or super talented or invented a great product that people bought and they became rich. They were rich because they happened to be landowners. And when people came and took care of their land in verse four, they just didn't pay them. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So someone who gets rich by unjust gain through unjust means, James goes after them and says, God is watching what you're doing. Stop it now while you have the chance. 
And so I will let you apply those verses in, to whatever situation you want to, okay? Because I realize and I understand that what happened in the first century happens today in 2020. And that not every person is rich is rich because of they've, they've had a great idea or developed a great product or they have a special skill that's rare and important and, and, and so forth in the market. I, I know there's a lot of people who get rich because they don't pay their workers. And God doesn't really have a lot of happy time for them. So, verse 5. You've lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And so, so these people, they're living the last days. They're stealing from the workers. They're hoarding up wealth. And God is watching. God is watching. God is watching. So we say to ourselves, we all will, you know, we'll walk we'll like this. Say, okay, I'm not that guy. <laughs> you know, I'm that guy. I'm not that guy. Thank the Lord, I'm not that guy. So here's the passage I want us to think about. I just wanted to give you the context. Verse seven. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. When you see injustice, it hurts, right? When you see the poor disenfranchised and taken and mistreated, mistreated, when you see people abuse their wealth and their positions of power, our heart becomes heavy and burdened. When we see those without a voice in our society being trampled by those who seem like they have too much voice, we look up to God and we cry out. And James says, be patient because the Lord is coming back. And then he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. He said, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, uh, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I want to talk to you today about the coming of the Lord in an unjust society. The coming of the Lord where there's injustice around every corner where the systems, the systems that we may have grown to trust don't seem very trustworthy anymore. Or maybe we, they never seem trustworthy. I don't know uh, exactly how it all works. But I do know that we live in a day and age that is not that far different than the day and age that James is writing. And absolutely, absolutely, one of the great, we work, of course, we work, of course, and the great hope here at the brook is we look at it, we look at what God has given and, 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 and the people God has blessed us with here at the brook. What we see is that God is doing something here and now. And when we talk about the coming of the Lord, and I think, I think one of the reasons why we don't talk about it very much is that some people seem like they get all concerned about the coming of the Lord and they forget about the here and now. But I really challenge you to find a verse in the Bible that talks about the coming of the Lord and tells us to forget about the here and now. Actually, every verse that I have found in the Bible that talks about the Lord coming again turns to us and says, listen, now because we know the Lord is coming, there's something to do right now. 
And so God has placed us in this wonderful position, in this wonderful place, with the hope of, of, what, of a mighty thing that God can do now. And part of the reason why we believe that is so is we, because we believe in the risen Christ and we believe that our King, the risen Christ, is coming again. And that's why we get up. And that's why we work hard. And that's why we put up the sweat equity into these things. And that's why we devote our time and our treasures and our talents to the work of the Lord. Because we know he's coming. So just four points. Just four points about the coming of the Lord and how it should change us right now. Number one, for those of us who believe in the coming of the Lord, it says in verse 7, very simply, be patient. How can I be patient in the age of Amazon? You know, I, I confess, you know, I don't want two-day delivery anymore. I want one-day delivery. And I, you know, I don't live that far from Doral, and I hear that there's like going to be drones flying out of Doral, and they're going to be dropping packages on my house. Yes, I'm for that, right? <laughs> Patience. I, I, uh, I was over on uh, the, the causeway this morning, and I was driving into church, and I was got stuck at the drawbridge. That really tested my patience. I mean, come on, can't your little boat go any faster? I have to preach, don't you know? Patience, right? Patience. Patience is a spiritual fruit, right? It's a fruit of the Spirit. If you read Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it talks about love, joy, peace, patience. For those of us who are believers in Jesus, our, the Holy Spirit within us is building within us patience. I don't think we have to pray for patience because any number of situations will arise any given day. But we can ask God to help us understand how patience works in our lives. There are times when we have to hold back, and maybe we don't want to hold back. There are times when we have to say, okay, I want to solve this problem now. I want to deal with this difficulty now. But God is saying we need to wait just a little bit or maybe take a slower tack than what we wanted to do. Maybe we wanted to do it with one fell swoop, and God says, no, no, be patient because the Lord is going to return. Develop patience. He says it a couple times, right? Verse 7, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers. He says it again in verse 8, be patient. He's talking about the people, these people in the book of James. If you go back to the first chapter of the book of James, he's talking about people who were suffering and going through trials and heartaches. And as, as much as these folks want to get out of the heartaches and the trials, James says you need to be patient. That patience have its perfect work, right? Let, let that develop in you. Let God do his work in you. That patience is not the patience of sitting in a waiting room and kind of twiddling our thumbs and hoping the doctor has good magazines or, you know, hoping that the person sitting next to you is not sick with some kind of horrible disease that you're going to catch, right? It's the idea that it's the idea that God is developing in us a heart that waits on Him. For the one who's weary, for the one who loses strength, Isaiah 40, blessed is the one who waits on the Lord. He will renew his strength, right? Like eagles. Everyone has that verse somewhere. Isaiah chapter 40. The second point that we, I find in this passage is in verse 8. After it says, you also be patient, he says, establish your hearts. 
establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And the expression is at hand, of course, means that it's close by, it's near. And like I said at the outset of the sermon, that everybody has every right to, every believer in every generation has had reason to believe that the Lord was going to come back and come back in their lifetime. Certainly, if you read the Apostle Paul, it seems like in several of his books, he was really, truly anticipating the Lord returning while he was alive. And then you get to the end of his letters and you start, read, you start reading those over and you realize that, ah, he realizes that he is probably going to die. But he passes that hope on to Timothy and to Titus and to his fellow believers. And so what do we do? What do we do? To be, after we're patient, God says, establish our hearts. What does it mean to establish our heart? It means to strengthen our heart, to sure up our heart, to be aware of our heart and what, what our condition is. You know, some of us are really tuned into the way our bodies work. We have a, a blood pressure machine, right? Or we get the regular checkups, and then that's really good. It's, it's good to have to be aware of what, what's going on with your body. But for Christians, the Lord tells us we need to be aware of also what's going on in our heart. And so that's why we talk about things at the Brook, like our, the idols that we worship, right? That's why we talk about, you know, what's going on in our inner world. That's why we talk about the wounded healer. That's why we talk about these things. Because it's really important that our, that our heart, our spirit be well. That our soul be well. That it would be established. That it would be strengthened. So, um, I've been on like blood pressure meds for like 10 years. I, my, I got, you know, my parents were all messed up. And so I inherited some stuff, I'm sure. Uh, and so I very do, I mean, I remember the first year, I didn't take it very seriously, taking the meds. And, you know, I went for my checkup, and the doctor said, you really need to take your meds. Said, oh, okay. And, you know, I, I like my family a lot, and I want to hang around as much as I can. So I decided I was going to be diligent and take my meds. And the question is, how diligent are we with our hearts to really pay attention to what's going in our hearts? You know how many things pull on our heart in any given day? They pull our hearts in directions always. And if, we're not, if our heart is not established, if our heart is not strengthened, our heart could be actually toppled by some of these things. And we could be overcome with evil. We could be pulled in absolutely the wrong direction. But because we know the Lord is returning, because we know that Jesus Christ is coming back, that should strengthen us for today and cause us to pay careful attention to our hearts. Well, how do we do it? We do it by reading the word. We do it by meditating on the word. We do it by making sure that we follow uh, the word's teaching as we, as we surround ourselves uh, with Christian friends and, and those who give us wise counsel. We follow those kinds of things. We make sure that we, make sure that we uh, pay attention to our heart and we make sure that if something in our life comes up that is just not quite right, and God's Holy Spirit tells us, that's not quite right. You need to get rid of it. That we hear God's voice in our heart. And we say, we say, you know what? I'm going to get rid of that thing because it's just not quite right. I don't like where it's headed. I don't like where it's dragging me. We take time to establish our heart, to establish it. Um, there's a reference in 1 Thessalonians 3 which goes along with this. And Paul says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you 
And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as all we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Establish and coming. That's exactly the same phrase and words that are used in James chapter 5. And in James 5, the command is we establish, establish our hearts. In 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul tells us the Lord establishes our hearts. So the same way in James 5, it tells us to be patient. And in Galatians chapter 5, it tells us that God works patience in us. So what you need to know is that in this Christian life, seems like, oh, there's so much to do as a Christian. There's this heavy load of everything in the world to do, and oh my goodness, it's overwhelming. And God says, listen, my friend, listen, my son, my daughter, he says, I am with you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to establish your heart. I'm going to guide your life. I'm going to give you patience. I'm going to do those things that's going to prepare you for what is to come. You know why? Because the Lord is coming back soon. Point number three. Because the Lord is coming back soon, we need to be supportive of our brothers and sisters. We know that Jesus is coming back soon. We know that his coming is near, that he's at the door. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And then it says in verse 9, and James puts it this way, James 5, 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Now, I put a positive spin on don't grumble, and I said, be supportive. I don't know what it is about believers if you read through the New Testament, there's a lot of talk about grumbling. Paul says in Philippians, do, do everything without murmuring and disputing. He calls out actually two people in Philippians 4 and says, you guys, stop your fighting. James, just a chapter before this, in James chapter 4, verse 11, says, don't speak evil against one another, brothers. Stop it. I don't know what it's about exactly. Sibling rivalry within the church, I don't know. But whatever it is, it's just human nature, I suppose, to be grumbling and disputing. I don't know if your mom was like my mom, but one of the things that my mom always said to, to us as a child, and I try to remember it, um, is that she said, and this, there's like some common mom book, <laughs> and, and she said, said, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. So you guys have the same mom I did, right? So you understand what you understand what that means, right? Stop the murmuring, stop the complaining, stop the grumbling. Someone does a ministry, don't say, I can do that a little bit better than Right? Someone has a plan that the church adopts and we say we're gonna do the same. Oh that plan is it's not as good as the plan. Right? And so uh, those kinds of things pop up in the life of any church. I know nothing of this about the brook. Nothing, 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 nothing at all. But I do know that Paul says it so many times, and James says it here, and it's, it's scattered throughout the scripture that there's something about, hey, let's get the job done. 
The Lord's coming back. There's work to do. We look at where God has placed us and we see that we see and we hear the calling of God to be the light of the world right here, to shine God's love to, uh, to this particular community. And we say, let's bless each other and support each other along the way. That's God's calling to us. And why? Because the Lord is coming. And notice what it says in verse 9, and I don't want to ignore God's word here, so that you may not be judged. When we think about the Lord's coming, um, one of the things that the Lord's going to do is going to evaluate. He's, gonna, he's, 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 the, he's, the, he's the inspector. Thankfully, God knows our hearts. Because not everything we do is perfect. God knows our hearts. Some, God knows that someone does something because they're selfish or greedy or, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, I, I don't spend time judging people's motives. I don't think God asks me to do that. However, God does. And for the person who's grumbling and the person who is kind of the naysayer in terms of, you know, I just complaining about everything, um, James is very clear. He says a judge is standing at the door. And he just got done in the first part of the chapter going after the rich people and talking about them being under judgment. And now he talks about a believer that the judge is coming. That doesn't be very clear about here. It doesn't, it's not about salvation necessarily in terms of, you know, you know that's taking care of at the cross, of course. But it's this, this coming God looking at our works and inspecting them and saying, is saying, was this something which was done for me or which was something that you just did for yourself? If we've just done things for ourselves in our life, just to build ourselves up so that we can have a good reputation or, or something like that, you know, that's just gonna burn up like wood and hay and stubble, Corinthians tells us. What we really need to do is make sure that all our labors are focused on building for eternity's sake. To build for something which lasts longer than us for the sake of the Lord. So that way we're gonna be supportive. So look at your, look at your heart and, and, and look at how supportive you are of, of those around you and, and, and things that are coming up, as things are coming up really fast and furious these days. Look how supportive you are and ask God how you can be more supportive. All of us can reach back into that well and say, Lord, what, what more can we do for you? How can we be supportive? And maybe it's just that, maybe, maybe the support looks like this, that you know what? You know, I come to church on Sunday and everybody's cool and I love, I love the experience here at the brook and then I kind of go my way and do my thing the rest of the week. Maybe support means I'm going to pray all regular for what's going on here. I'm going to pray that God's divine work happens, that something unbelievably godlike happens here, right? Spend our time in prayer. Maybe there's talents or gifts that maybe you haven't told anyone about. You're kind of hiding them under a bushel. Because, you know, you don't want to get too involved, right? You know, I've met those kinds of people, right? And God says, God says, do what you can to be of support to each other. Support each other. But the Lord is coming back soon. He's coming back soon. Let's do what God's called us to do. There's one last point to our sermon today. God asks us to develop patience. God asks us to establish our hearts. God asks us to be supportive of our brothers and sisters. And then God calls us to look at his purposes. So verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, 
5.10. As an example of suffering of patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James is really good. A really fun assignment is to read the book of James and circle all the Old Testament references. It is, it is super fun, and it makes you say, whoa, I need to read the Old Testament again. Uh, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. We consider those blessed to remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so I want you to kind of focus in on the phrase, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. And so, you know, are we, I, I think one of the reasons why uh, I was scared as a kid about talking about the Lord's coming was because the preachers made it really super scary, right? Super scary, you know, like, you know, buy an asbestos suit because there's gonna be hellfire flying everywhere and stuff. I mean, I mean, I, I have stories. I got some stories I could tell you. Uh, this is a really interesting verse because this is a verse that speaks to our hearts as believers who really struggle when we look at the world and I don't know about you, but I, so many of us, I think, really feel the burdens and the weights of the world and really think that, you know, there's a lot of injustice. There's a lot of stuff going on. It's just wrong, just plain wrong. And we say to ourselves, I'm just one person. I can't fix it. You know, I tried once to fix something. It didn't work out. You know, I'm just, I'm just checking out for that, right? And God, and, and James calls us this and says, you've seen the purpose of the Lord. And he bases it on the phrase before it in verse 11. You have seen, have heard of, the steadfastness of Job. Do you remember the story of Job in the Bible? Job had everything possible that a human being could have. He had a, a wonderful family. He had all kinds of possessions. And even more important than that, that God looked at him as being a just man. And you remember the story of Job is that Satan came, comes to the Lord and, and, and diabolically, you know, is challenging the Lord. And I mean, I'm not sure, you know, I've had people say, how could Satan get into God's presence? I, the, the Bible doesn't ask us to think about that. What, what, what the Bible asks us to think about is, is what God's response was. Job, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And all of a sudden, Satan starts taking away things from Job, right? If you, look at, if you look at the very first chapter of Job, he has some really interesting things. Uh, he has seven sons, three daughters. He has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. That's his collection. And, God, and Satan uh, is allowed to kind of smite them all. It's all God. It's all God. Report after report comes, and he hears, he, and he hears that these things are gone. Even, even his own very children are gone. They're, they're killed at the hand of the evil one. And so Job, Job is in a really bad place, but he says, you know, I'm not going to curse God. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? That's what he says. And then Satan goes back to God and, and, and says, listen, you know, um, let, me, let me rough Job up his physical state. He's saying, at least I got my health, right? So let me get his health. 
So Satan smites Job with a horrible disease with these boils and they're painful and oozing and anguishing. So Job ends up sitting on a heap of ashes with broken pieces of pottery scraping his skin. All of his wealth is gone. His family is gone. His wife looks at him and says, Let's curse God and die. That's all you got, Job. Well, you know the story of Job, that his friends come and give him some really bad theology and tell him, you know, you need to repent. You're saying you're just wicked, obviously wicked, because all these bad things happen to you. You must be really wicked. And Job gets really mad. And, and, and sometimes I, I've, I've thought to myself that um, Job sometimes reads like watching cable news. Like you have these two uh, characters on the cable news and, and they're just kind of yelling at each other, right? And they're not really talking. I think these points, I think these points. And there's just no conversation. So, I mean, it gives you a headache after a while. And she, you, Job is like, I don't even want to hear from you. You are miserable counselors, right? That's what Job says. I don't want to hear from you. I want to hear from God. I'm done with you guys. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. You're not friends. Right? That's what he says. And so Job hears from God. You know the story, right? God shows up in a whirlwind. And God says, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I put the stars out there? Where were you when I opened the vast expanse of the, of the water? Where, where were you when all these things happened? You weren't there, were you? And Job, at the end of the book, confesses that I spoke a little too brashly. He repents of his attitude of, of challenging God. He's allowed to challenge, but he, was, he, he repented of it. And God puts this claim on Job at the end of the book. He looks at the friends and he says, God says in 42 verse 7, my anger burns against you and against your two friends for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Whoa, that's good, right? The person who believes in Jesus Christ, the person who endures the hardships of this life is a person who at the end will be vindicated. Does life hurt? Sometimes it hurts terrible bad. Does it seem like there are days when you don't have a friend in the world or that no one understands what you're going through? The people who were closest to Job either didn't understand him or they had their own issues and they weren't able to help him. You know what I find super interesting here? Is that God never once says to Job, hey, Job, you wanna know what really happened? Satan came up to me and started talking trash. <laughs> Job never finds that out. I mean, it's like, I don't know when Job dies and he goes in the presence of the Lord. Did, did he find out then? I don't know what his reaction was then. Maybe he didn't care anymore. But the thought was, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes of suffering. We don't know. God doesn't reveal those things to us oftentimes. He just asks us to keep our eyes on him. 
And so James, at the end of his book, he says, listen, look at the purpose of the Lord. Look at God's purpose for Job. God's purpose for Job was so much bigger than Job's only singular life. And he realizes now that, he, I mean, if Job lived 2,000 years before, before the birth of Christ, the story of Job has blessed people for now 4,000 years. And he has much to teach us. And some have noted that when you get to the end of Job, he had 7,000 sheep. Now he has 14,000. He had 3,000 camels. Now he has 600 camels. He had 500 yoke of oxen. Now he has 1,000. He had 500 female donkeys. Now he has 1,000. Everything that Job had, at least when it comes to those and the animals, were doubled. God has a rich blessing for us at the end. Maybe it's not in this life, but that's why we talk about the coming of the Lord. It's in the next life. We just read the verse that said, even if like you, you get a lot of money at the end of your life, the money is gone because you die. That's really not that important at the end of the day. What's really important is that you know that the Lord is coming and we adjust our lives accordingly. That we look to the Lord and we say, Lord, help us to be patient. Help our hearts to be established in the faith. Give us a positive outlook about our brothers and sisters. Help us to look at your purposes in the light of, of Job's life and the life of all the great believers who you have blessed despite trials and heartaches and suffering. And I want you to, I want to end on this. It's not a point, but I want you to know this, that the Lord who is coming back, our Lord is coming back. Our Lord is compassionate. In verse 11, he is compassionate and he is merciful. I commend to you today, this God. I commend to you today, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is a good God a compassionate and merciful God. And he is going to come back. We don't know when, we don't set dates, but we live accordingly. We live pursuing him, following him, dropping ourselves, and making sure that we honor him in all that we do and say. Let us pray. Lord, we live to the skies and we pray with the Apostle John, even so come Lord Jesus, you hear, you hear our groans of pain. You hear our anguish at the injustices done in this world, especially those ones that are so personal and deep. You hear it. And Lord, we know that they're only finally gonna be completely resolved when you return. Help us, Lord, to take a good look at our lives today, where we are. Are we patient? Are, are our hearts established? Are, are we supportive? All those things. Help us to take a good look at ourselves and to commit and recommit our way to you. Remind us this day and every day that indeed you will return and that when you return, you indeed are a compassionate and merciful and loving God. We commit our ways to you this day. 
and our life as a body here at the Bible. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.